let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege, this tremendous honor, Father, to gather together to fellowship and the unity of faith as family, uh, a faith that you've provided since eternity past for each one of us, not just as individuals, but as a group, as a congregation. Father, thank you so much for evenings like this, times where we can recharge and hear the truth from your word. Father, thank you for equipping us for the good work of the spreading of the gospel of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray also for those in the congregation that can't be with us this evening, that earnestly desire to be here. We pray that your will be done, of course, and in your timing, that they heal and return to us. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father. We, we know that they are many, and we are grateful for the opportunity to by means of your patience, to be able to evangelize them so that we might increase our brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. What a privilege that is. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this of sanctification a reality. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, how God enlightens the eyes of our hearts. Uh, obviously, we are finished with the 30-part series on what is repentance and who gets to define it. Um, tonight's uh, sort of a wrap-up lesson, one meant to impart perspective, and that shouldn't be surprising. After a 30-part series, we covered a lot of ground. Um, there was some very serious notes, some solemn notes to our lessons, uh, but there was also um, great reason to rejoice. And both of those things really just require a certain amount of perspective from the only place we can get it in its purest form, which is the Word of God. And so tonight will be uh, really just meant to impart some of that perspective and summarize it in a way. As you know, we just finished up that 30-part series on what is repentance. And it was interesting because uh, Brian House brought up a great point during our leadership meeting after service on Sunday. And the Spirit reiterated it for all of you to hear on Tuesday up here on the board, the supernatural Bible. The Bible is the only supernatural book we have. God's intention is that we read and hear His Word in a way that lies beyond natural human experiences even. That's what it means to be supernatural, above the natural. And really, you should think about the Bible that way. It's the only supernatural book we have. Um, God doesn't tell us that He's going to necessarily work the same way with extra-biblical texts. 
He says, I will use my word. I will sanctify you by my word. My spirit will remind you of my word. Uh, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the word. Um, it's the only book we have that's supernatural. And so we ought to lean on it that way. God's intention is that we read and hear his word in a way that lies beyond natural human experiences. Ephesians 1, 17 through 19 2 Corinthians 3.18, John 15.10-11, Romans 8.10-17. For example, these obviously are not the only scriptures that back this up, but we'll look at these. For starters, we, quote, see the Lord with what the Bible calls the eyes of our hearts. Go to Ephesians 1.17. Ephesians 1.17, so we'll get started this way this evening again. For starters, we see the Lord with what the Bible calls the eyes of our hearts. Ephesians 1, 17. Ephesians 1, 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. In other words, Paul said, I want him to open and enlighten the eyes of your heart. And so the eyes of your heart... Let's face it, our hearts don't have eyes. And so we are talking immediately about something supernatural, something that is beyond even the words on the page. And I was thinking about that, and I invite you to do the same. Dead people can't see. They are in darkness. So this spiritual sight that Paul speaks of is unique to believers only. The more the Lord opens our eyes, the more transformed we are, which is yet another supernatural effect the Word of God has on we believers. Go to 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Again, dead people can't see. They're in darkness. But we, through supernatural ability, can see, can have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And that does not just happen. This is the point. It just doesn't happen by understanding facts or even memorizing Scripture. There's something supernatural about the Bible. 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Again, we, quote, see the Lord with our eyes, or uh, with the eyes of our hearts, understanding that we too are being transformed into that image that we see. An unbeliever will never experience this. An unbeliever will never experience this nor will a professing Christian unbeliever. 
These are things that are supernatural, reserved for believers. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, being transformed into the image from glory to glory. These are supernatural things meant for and uniquely meant for believers only. So these other individuals, unbelievers, cannot see what we see because they are still blind. And when you're blind, the best you can do, let's face it, is grope in the dark. Hence the point on the board. The Bible is the only supernatural book we have. God's intention is that we read or hear His Word in a way that lies beyond natural human experiences. That's the one thing we have in common with unbelievers. We still have natural human experiences, and that's all they have. They don't have supernatural experiences like we do. We also have the supernatural ability to abide in Christ's love. Abide in Christ's love as a function of keeping His commandments. Go to John 15.10. John 15.10. Again, we also have the supernatural ability to abide in Christ's love as a function of keeping His commandments. Again, more supernatural abilities. Not only can we see with the eyes of our hearts, but we can abide in Christ's love. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be, made, may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Those are not things that uh, an unbeliever can read and even understand. These are things, again, that are reserved for believers. If you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love. Logically speaking, think about it. You must have something in the first place to keep it, right? That's implied. You must have something in the first place to keep it. Well, we find His commandments in one tidy place, the Bible. Since abiding is a supernatural experience, seeking and keeping that which facilitates said abiding, keeping my commandments, must also be supernatural. The only way, in other words, you can keep His commandments is supernaturally. That's why the flesh is never able to measure up. The Bible calls those things wood, hay, and straw. You might as well burn them up. Those are religious good works. An individual who's not invested in Christ, who may not even be in Christ, who's trying to do good by Christ. Wood, hay, and straw, it's garbage. The only person that's able to keep his commandments is a believer in the first place, a regenerate person. An unbeliever, an unregenerate person cannot do those things. So again, since abiding is a supernatural experience, seeking and keeping that which facilitates said abiding must also be supernatural. And I was thinking about this. Uh, reflect on this with me. Therein lies the criticality. Now this is sort of hearkening back to the past couple of weeks, especially on that work that we did together regarding extra-biblical texts. So therein lies the criticality of what the Spirit's been teaching us 
all of us from this pulpit as of late regarding extra-biblical texts. And I'll say it one last time, and I won't apologize for it either. The Bible is meant to interpret extra-biblical texts, not the other way around. We are not to read extra-biblical texts, no matter how much they tickle our ears, no matter how much we enjoy them, no matter how much they emotionally charge us up. That's not the point. Those things are never meant to interpret the Bible. The Bible interprets everything else, including life itself. And there's too many people out there, and I think I wrote a blog, or I think I taught on it one time, living in what you would call existentialism. Oh, God is what I, what I experience Him to be. No. You may experience God, but that's not God, how you think you experience God. God is who He says He is, right here. You don't get to interpret and tell the rest of the world and write books and sell them uh, who God is outside of the Bible itself. And so again, the Bible is meant to interpret extra-biblical texts, not the other way around. Again, our main point is still up on the board, the supernatural Bible. The Bible is the only supernatural book we have. God's intention is that we read and hear His Word in a way that lies beyond natural human experiences. Our transformation that we just looked at into His image is not a self-made exercise or simply some moral improvement like some people propose. A lot of Christians are on a moral improvement, uh, what do you want to call it, a wheel? A little wheel, a a treadmill? Um, On a moral improvement or a self-made man uh, exercise Um, Our transformation is supernatural. It is not self-made, nor is it some kind of moral improvement. That is fundamentally the great error of religion. It tries to... Where is she? Tries to dress up the pig. A pig is a pig is a pig. But yet, religion always tries to dress it up. That is not the point. For believers, the piggy has gone to the grave. It's dead. The new creature is just that, brand new in Christ, already wonderfully made, with no need for makeup. Go to Romans 8.10. Romans 8.10. Romans 8, verse 10. Again, we're still developing the point on the board. Romans 8, verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who that would mean you're a believer, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Think about that. Believers live a supernatural existence sustained by the Word of God. Verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. 
For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And you know when that happens? When you read your Bible. That's when it happens. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I can't tell you how many times my heart breaks for people. They don't even know they're loved. Or even Christians, uh, well-intentioned believers, losing sight of the fact that God loves them. That God never, ever will forsake them. That God became man and redeemed them. These things alone ought to get us out of bed in the morning. But if you're, quote, spiritually rusty, if you're not reading your Bible, if you're defunct on the grace that God gives you from this pulpit, let's say, in every form, I mean, you know, being here when we're open, reading the blogs, listening to what your pastor says about uh, this or that, those kinds of things. The people who ignore those things end up in a situation where they stray. And they no longer hear the Spirit the same way because the Spirit has less and less to work with. If you're not taking in the Word of God, you are emaciated spiritually. You are starving spiritually. The Word of God is the very nourishment of a spiritual person, of a believer. And it's amazing how many people don't eat. It's amazing, not to be wise, but it's amazing how many people eat, like a lot, but don't eat where it matters. Don't take in the Word of God. So the Spirit testifies, Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. This happens when we read or even hear the Word of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Again, we are developing this point on the board, the supernatural Bible. The Bible is the only supernatural book we have. And I know that's a lot to think about um, already on one single topic. But if you've been paying attention, the Spirit's been really driving the point on the board home uh, in our lessons in general, especially over the past couple of weeks. Some of you need to just trade in all the other stuff you've got hanging around, all the other literature, all the other texts, all the other go-to texts. You need to trade all that in for your Bible. Um, Don't ever buy that lie. I mean, that's a fight that I've been fighting since day one, I think. Don't ever buy the lie that you can't read your own Bible. That has to be one of the most heinous things ever. Heinous lies of all time. The other key principle from this past week has been this. I'll call it the whole truth. The good news includes that there is no mystery regarding Jesus Christ and His gospel. That's part of the good news. Jesus Christ said, here I am. (laughs) 
He made no bones about himself. said, yes, I am the sovereign God of the universe. I am the Messiah. Here I am. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. But I can't stand, I cannot tolerate arrogance. And that's what we see in the Bible. And you know what? That's really good news because Jesus Christ is exactly who He said He was. Jesus Christ is God. He's not in any way, shape, or form inconsistent with the God that we read about in the Bible, whether it's the Father, the Spirit, or the Son. So the good news includes that there is no mystery regarding Jesus Christ and His Gospel. I love that. I don't know about you, but I love that. I love that Jesus Christ gave us clear instructions. I hate when I hear people confused about the Gospel. The truth has already been set before mankind, John 1.14. He walked in the flesh, spoke His truth, and was quite clear about all of it. For example... Repentance, which we just finished a 30-part series on, and saving faith, which we spent, I don't know, a good portion of the year and a half with the Gospel Reload, starting in October of 2015. He made no bones about these things. Just in case you're wondering what that scriptural reference on the board is, John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, here's where, I don't know about you, but when I was preparing my lesson for you this evening, here's where we stop and revel in Jesus Christ. I mean, just look at the Holy Scripture on the board. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full, full, not kinda, full of grace and truth. He's the manifestation of grace and truth. So we have to take pause and revel in Jesus Christ. Now is a perfect time. Right now. And frankly, we ought to do this as often as possible. But do we? Do we pause in our busy lives and reflect? I mean, how long does it take? Ten seconds? Ten seconds? I was so elated. I had a a nice lunch with an individual in the congregation today. I just wanted to talk. And so I talked. We had lunch. And the person said to me, you know, it's it's come to the point in my own spiritual walk that if I crumple up a paper and I go, and I make the basket, I say, thank you, Lord. And I said, that's awesome. That's exactly how we ought to be. That's exactly how we ought to be. We should be grateful for everything in our lives. How about the fact that he can go like this when Jackie can't even get out of her chair because of her hip? Or Pat with her lung situation? Or Frank, who's been in bed now for two years? How about just being able to crumple a paper and toss it? How's that for gratitude? Now's the time when the facts about Jesus Christ, the fullness of all grace and truth, is set before us 
and is resident in us, and His Holy Spirit is hearkening us to ponder the truth set before us, a truth that supernaturally sets us free. So I challenge each of you to do this often. Just, frankly, just find a time. Find a time in your so-called, is it not, is it kind of like a misnomer? Is it not kind of BS, your busy schedule? Are you really that busy? Or are you just mm, preoccupied? Maybe a little lazy. Maybe a mixture of both. Maybe distracted by the details of life. I don't know. So I kind of like am hesitant to say just find a time to appreciate your Lord and Savior. How about make time? At whatever cost it is to your ridiculous life. <laughs> make time if you must. And just so you don't think I'm talking down to you, I am just as guilty, I suppose, as anyone on this front, to be totally honest. I don't appreciate him enough because I get familiar with his mercy, his grace, and his love. It's shameful, but it's true. And it's interesting, too, because I talk to him all day long. Sometimes I catch myself talking out loud and people are like, all right, kids, stay away from that guy. That's one of those strange guys we talked about. Don't take candy from him either. You know. I talk to him all day long about everything. Literally about everything. If he was a regular person, he'd be so sick of me. But he's not. You know. I talk to him all day long. And for a lack of a better way to say it, I begin lowering his position to my own even. And that's when it gets a little bit goofy. All of a sudden, Jesus is, you know, down like here. Let's read a little bit more of a passage we visited earlier. Go to John 15.10. John 15.10. And when you become familiar with the one person who is Lord in your life, you know, things start happening, and it's not good. You become familiar with Jesus Christ, you're going to have problems. You're going to stop making bad decisions, decisions that take you further and further away from the truth that sets you free, the peace that he gave you to enjoy. John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And that's fantastic perspective for us to chew on. No longer do I call you slaves. The slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. There's obviously a context there. 
uh, with his disciples. But nonetheless, he says, I'm going to call you friends. Again, one of the shameful things that I do, as I'm sure you do also, is become familiar with Jesus. I think it's phenomenal that he might call me, he consider me a friend in any sense of the word. But should I become familiar with him? And I, again, essentially lower his position to my own level. The point is that while we rightly consider ourselves friends of Jesus, we are still his followers, and he is still our master. John 15 is a wonderful description of our relationship with our Lord. And I'll steal from uh, McDonald on the whole of John 15. He says, someone has pointed out that as branches we receive, verse 5, as disciples we follow, verse 8, and as friends we commune, verse 15. And so we have this, uh, I wouldn't call it complicated, but we have a, a certain relationship with Jesus Christ, and we ought not forget the nature of it. There's even boundaries to it, so to speak. Go to verse 5. You're still in John 15, right? Just so you have the references. Someone has pointed out that as branches we receive. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How about verse 8? As disciples we follow, look at verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And then, of course, 15, As friends we commune. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And so there's a certain intimacy there, but even within the boundaries or even within the confines or the constraints of intimacy, there are boundaries. Jesus Christ is our Lord. You can be friendly with Him, but He's still your Lord. He's the one who sustains you, for He is the Word of God. Again, the reason I read that with you is to highlight a little issue that we might share as people. That is to become too familiar with Jesus, our Lord. I would argue there are people that aren't here tonight because they are too familiar with our Lord. And that's a shame. And that's between them and the Lord. I'm not judging anyone. But that's what it means to become too familiar Because it's really easy to abuse someone who's always there, isn't it? It's really easy to say no to him, knowing that the moment after that, he's still there. He's not fickle like we humans are. He's always there. And so we, we, we esteem him lower almost. That's what it means to become too familiar with Jesus, our Lord. While He is our friend in the sense that He describes it to His disciples in John 15, 15, we mustn't ever forget that we are also servants. Bondservants. Doulos in the Greek. Paul would 
call himself a bond slave or a bond servant in the New Testament. Both translations are that Greek word, doulos, by the way. Bond servant, uh, bond slave, it's doulos. It's the same idea. We are under the lordship of our Lord and Savior, our Master, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, says, I'm friendly with you. I'm going to let you in on the mysteries of myself even. There are supernatural things that you're going to learn when you read the Bible as a saved individual that the rest of the world can't understand. And I'm willing to do that for you because I love you. And I want you to be transformed. I want you to be sanctified. I want you to be set apart. I want you to be glorified. I want all these things for you. So in that way, he's friendly to us, but we are still doulos. We are still bond slaves of him. I guess what the Spirit's saying to us this evening is sort of this dichotomy, right? Friends and bond slaves. While we rejoice in our friendly relationship with God, having been reconciled, that's what reconciliation means, we ought never forget that we have been purchased with a price. Namely, Christ's own blood. Galatians 1.10 Being made bondservants. Acts 20.28 20, Go to Galatians 1.10 Galatians 1.10 We are friends and bondservants. And it just seems to be easier to capitalize on the friend part and forget about the bondservant part. Galatians 1.10, Paul wrote, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul knew his standing. He spent long time, long periods of time with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ the one who trained him personally, remember? And yet here's the man years after saying, I'm a bondservant of Christ. I'm still a bondservant. I know the friendliness that my Lord speaks of, but I am a bondservant, and we must remember our place. Paul fundamentally understood the meaning of doulos, and rightfully so. He consistently impressed upon pastors the importance of remembering who we are relative to Christ's standing in the universe. Go to Acts 20, 27. And these are principles that we can all, whether you're a pastor or not, you can all abide in. Acts 20, verse 27. So Paul, understanding the meaning of doulos in the most supernatural way, nonetheless, would impress these things upon even the leaders in the churches, like myself. Acts 20, 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among, <laughs> excuse me, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, 
men will arise, excuse me, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Obviously, Paul saying, do not be surprised when unbelievers arise out of local assemblies and drag people away. I've had, I've had that happen in this church. People that reject the truth, and the next thing you know, nobody ever seems to leave on their own. They have to drag people with them. I call them the Pied Pipers. They drag people with them. Why? Because most people are cowards, especially unbelievers. And so Paul said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul's saying, listen, as a bondservant, your job as a shepherd is to protect the flock. You know what? It's been about 10 years now in this post. I would say that that one thing, more than anything, is the principle that is percolated up for me as a shepherd. In terms of duties, I used to think when I first started out, study and teach, study and teach, study, and that was the whole thing. And I was misled. You know what I've learned? This job is really about protecting the sheep. And if you watch a real shepherd out in a pasture, that's exactly what they're doing. He says, "Go, you're so stupid. Go over there where there's grass, first of all. Go eat over there because you're so dumb. You're chewing on dirt. <sighs> and i got to go over here and pull this one out of the thicket because he's dummy, Right? Some people never learn. Besides those things, besides those things, you know, you can deal with that within the intimacy of the family, right? Do you know what I'm saying? There's an intimacy there. It's like, yeah, whatever, but we, you know, kiss and make up. But what about the wolves? Though that's my biggest fear. And if you read, if you read Paul, that's always his biggest fear. He's always doing this number over the horizon. He's saying, I'm telling you right now, there are wolves. And some of them are inside the flock. And they're trying to tear us up. And that's what I've learned after 10 years, after a decade, that a good portion of my job is as a protector. That's why a lot of times I get crazy up here. Because it's so irritating. Because a lot of you will partake and flirt with the wolves. You know what I'm getting at? You'll like be on the fringes of the flock going... And the wolf's like drooling and licking its lips. And you're like a piece of mutton. Do you know what I'm getting at? And you're portraying yourself that way. Saying, come and get it. Like an adulterous person. And I hate that. And I know it takes two to tango. But I really hate when threats from without come in. And so as a bond slave, as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, my job is to protect the flock. And I wouldn't even be being his friend if I didn't do so. So, again, up here on the board, while we rejoice in our friendly relationship with God, having been reconciled, we ought never forget that we have been purchased with a price, namely Christ's own blood, being made bondservants. Never forget that you were purchased. You were purchased with the greatest cost of all. 
So I started thinking about that, and I invite you to think about it with me again. As I began class with this evening, all of this is about perspective. And that's about as good as it gets for an under-shepherd. That's being honest. I can guide you through Holy Scripture, warn you against the wolves that are constantly circling the flock, and I can give you a little wisdom and perspective along the way. But I won't ever purposely try to supplant the Word of God in your souls. For I know I could die tomorrow. It's that simple. But the Word will carry on for all of eternity. So my hope is as James wrote. Go to James 1.21. James 1.21. And this is what it means. I mean, James was another perfect example of a bond slave. A bondservant, a doulos. James one twenty one. Jesus' brother wrote this. James one twenty one. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted. You know, that's all I want for you. What's the key to the spiritual life? Humility. Okay, so in that, that thing that I just keep going, humility is the key to spiritual life. Humility is the key to spiritual life. I even got Scott saying it now. Humility is the key to spiritual life. Right, Scott? Tuesday nights. Humility is the key. I can't even say it anymore. Okay, in that, in that, receive the word implanted. Because that's not going to happen. You're not going to receive the word implanted if you're arrogant. And that's why it's so important for a shepherd to do what he does. Because, let's face it, you don't go home and look in the mirror and say, Be humble! You go home and you go, Woohoo, TiVo! <laughs> Honey, move aside. And you get your half gallon of ice cream, and you're eating like, you know, way more than you eat spiritually. Right? It takes a shepherd who's in protective mode all the time to say, wake up. Stop being arrogant. In humility, when you're humbled, when the, you know, the soil's right, so to speak, receive the word implanted. In context, that's what James was getting at. He was really focusing on salvation proper here. But as we know, we're saved daily. And the principles of salvation at salvation proper are the same principles that apply for salvation or deliverance as a believer even. God gives grace to the humble. God sanctifies you. That's why some people are sanctified on a much steeper curve than others. Because some people are more stubborn, I guess. Some people are just slow learners. Some people just need more humbling. I don't know. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Do you see something peculiar there? What saves your soul? Do you see it? In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Hold that thought. But prove yourselves doers of the word, 
and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. How does that work if you're not taking in the Word of God? How does that work if you're emaciated, if you're a starving believer? How does that work if you're off reading devotionals instead of Holy Scripture? How does that work? It doesn't. That's the whole point. You get jazzed up for a moment, you get emotional about something, and as soon as you're away from it, it's gone. James wanted the Word of God imparted. Up here on the board. Just like any good pastor does. In humility, receive the Word implanted. First and foremost is salvation. That was the context of that verse, primarily. James's desire was consistent with God's. 1 Timothy 2.4 Who desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. As opposed to Satan's desire that we'll get to in a moment, 2 Timothy 3, 1-7, beyond salvation is the fruit of it. To receive, in humility, to receive the word implanted implies fruit-bearing. Beyond salvation is the fruit of it, as in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc., Self-control. Something every pastor wants for those in his church. That's what I want for you. Not because I want to say, hey, look at the, look at the fruit in my congregation. I'm not a braggart. That's not what this is about. I know that if you're bearing fruit, you have peace and contentment in your life. Because that's what a person who's oriented to God has. They bear fruit. More blessed to give than to receive. They're in humility. Therefore, I know blessings will become them. That's awesome. It doesn't just end at salvation proper. Up here on the board. Galatians 5, 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What is Satan's desire? To reference the point on the board, go to 2 Timothy 3.1. 2 Timothy 3.1. So James's desire was consistent with God's as opposed to Satan's desire. 2 Timothy 3.1. We see Satan's desire in here, but realize this that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Wow! Oof. 
Sounds like America. Sadly. Not all of us, but as a culture. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. In other words, avoid the posers. Because remember, even Satan is an angel of light, proposes himself or poses as an angel of light, as do his agents. Beware of the posers, especially ones that stand behind a pulpit. Avoid such men as these. For among them, now this is Satan's gig, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate, that means lead them away in spiritual chains, captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the exact opposite of what a shepherd wants for the flock. That's all I want for you. Do you understand? I just want the word implanted. That's it. And a humble person I know will stay focused. It's an arrogant person in the flock that flirts on the edges. Nobody's looking. Next thing you know, they're way over there on the edge because they're arrogant. They're like, look at me. I'm not even getting, I'm not even stricken with any pain. I'm not suffering. That bald guy must be on crack. He must be, he must be reading a different Bible. Because nothing's happening to me. You go read the wisdom books and see what happens to those people with that attitude. Every dog has his day. God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. But an arrogant person thinks they can get away with things, slinking around in the shadows. That's not coming to the knowledge of the truth. That's not deliverance. That's self-destructive behavior. That is not fruit of the Spirit. That's not love. That's not living for others. That's living for self. What was the baseline definition? It was in Philippians 2.3. Live for others in humility of mind. Consider yourselves or consider others more highly esteemed than yourselves even. That's like the baseline definition. That's the litmus test for for humility. If you're not doing that, then you are certainly not living as James would propose, as Christ himself would propose. And therefore, you lack blessings in your life. Up here on the board, again, in humility, receive the word implanted. First and foremost is salvation, of course. James' desire was consistent with God's, as opposed to Satan's. Satan is always trying to captivate you and lead you away in chains. Beyond salvation is the fruit of it, something every pastor wants for those in his church. This is what I want. And I've got to close here in a moment. Hmm. This is what I want for you. Love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what I want in your life. And you know how you're going to get it? Not by listening to me. Right here. How do I know? Because this has supernatural abilities. I don't. Not in that sense. Not in your life that way. I just want you to read the Bible. I want you to be set free. I want you to have this fruit. Because I know if you have this fruit, you don't have the other fruit. I know if you're focused in humility on others, you're not focused on yourself. I know if you're laying down your life for others, you're not laying down your life for yourself. And then Jesus Christ, who never lied, who said, is more blessed to give than to receive. Greater love is no one than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. All that kind of good stuff. It's real. And it takes on a whole new supernatural reality in your life. I know this as a shepherd. And that's why I'm constantly gathering you. Get out of the thicket. Get away. Stop flirting on the fringes. There's not exciting out there. There's nothing exciting out there. You're not going to learn anything new from a television program or some romance novel or, frankly, even most devotionals. You're not going to learn anything. You, definitely not going to learn anything you cannot learn here. That's what the Spirit's saying. That's why I'm constantly trying to gather you to keep you just sort of, you know, keep your eyes focused on your first love. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ. Stop being tantalized. Stop being enticed. Stop playing the little games when no one's looking. That type of thing. Cut it out. Cut it out. Because you're just self-destructing. Haven't you learned? You're 30, you're 40, you're 50 years old. Haven't you learned yet? You idiot. Haven't you learned that every time you've gone into that thicket, you come out all bruised and cut? Wake up. I don't want that for you. Stay around people that actually love you, that actually care about you at a supernatural level. Stop hanging around with idiots. And I mean even you people who play video games. You know, with your little headsets, and you're talking to people that could care less about Jesus Christ. I just had that, I was having that lunch with that person, and they said um, they were online playing some video game. I don't know what it is. And there's always like a chat thing on the side. Like, and there's like 10 people with headsets and stuff like that. And one of the guy's handles was like pastor something. So this guy says, hey, you like a real pastor and stuff? You know, I'm a Christian. No, I'm an atheist. So then he gets into it. And guess who ends up on the bottom of the pile? Everybody pig piles on this one person, this guy who is defending Christ. Just, you're not going to find Jesus on a video game. You're not going to fellowship with light, with idiots from the world. But an arrogant person says, no, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll have all, yeah, okay. So uh, Grand Theft Auto. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Now, the first time you rip a cop out of the car and beat him to death and take his cruiser, I'm going to go out on a limb and say love's not there. You might have a little joy because you're sick in the head. Right? There's definitely not peace. Someone's at not at peace. The guy's got family. Right? I mean, how can you possibly say that's fruit of the Spirit? What the heck are you people thinking? You don't get it? 
That's all I'm trying to do. Just encourage you in humility to receive the word implanted. That's how you have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the wonderful privilege of studying your word here this evening. Thank you for feeding us faithfully. Thank you for giving us the very bread of life that we might dine on it together as family, fellowshipping together in a supernatural, unique way. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things that we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.